Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Talk, a podcast about diversity in higher education. And we are here with our podcast team. And so this is the part two of Cancel Culture. We love to record these things when we bring in more people to share their thoughts and opinions. And today's is on Cancel Culture. Casey, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling, you know, we recorded about 12 hours ago the episode um, late night because our guest D um, lives out on the West Coast and they gave us a lot of stuff to think about. So I'm glad we're having this this part two with the whole team, um, an extension of these conversations uh, that we started last night. Um, and these are going to be ongoing, but welcome uh, to the team. So um, I know there was a lot of controversy around cancel culture, especially what does that mean in pop culture? What has it meant historically? So does someone want to start there so we can get some initial feelings going? Well, I guess I I would like to mention just how I think, you know, over the summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, there was like a big push for educating people and all of that. And I just wish oftentimes if we were to actually, you know, have like enforce that within cancel culture, like instead of canceling people, we educate them. I feel like that would become it would be a better outcome than what we have now where we just take these people off from their positions and oftentimes maybe that's justified because they shouldn't be in those positions in the first place but then we don't really focus on the after like what do we do following that like how do we follow up with that person to make sure that they don't do that in another space it's like a lot of times too when someone is quote-unquote canceled or called out for being racist for example they just find more people and then they double down on that belief that they have and they feel righteous about it. So not only are they not learning, but sometimes I think that has other people come together and actually has the opposite effect of what we intend. Yeah. And I think that's like a lot, that's a, that's a lot worse. Like I would hate for them to like congregate in little groups and then form like this whole, like, I don't know. I think about white supremacy when I think about this and I would hate for that to like continue to happen Well, I, you know, I, I keep thinking about, I know that some of you, after listening yesterday and certainly learning more about cancel culture, and maybe I'm just, just have a few more years ahead of any, ahead of all of you, not put together, but um, I, you know, I, I keep thinking about this generation, Gen Z, but millennials as well. And that when I was teaching students, particularly BIPOC, were not necessarily comfortable in, in speaking out in the same way. It doesn't mean that student activism didn't happen. We know, we, we know along the way in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, it, there's, that's always been part of our society, but not in the same way where um, really trying to I think there's more of it and there's a comfort in, I think that because of social media, people are better informed. And I say better in quotes because it doesn't mean that everything in social media is, 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 all, um, is all truth, but that there is more opportunity to share um, information quickly. And so that being so readily accessible, I think folk are more willing to speak out. And I think that's a good part 
that's the good part uh, of cancel culture. Um, it's this willingness of, of populations that non, not necessarily would have spoken up back in the day. Um, and so I think that, like I said, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the civil rights movement and all the other movements on the West Coast, Southwest, East Coast, um, and in the world. But I do see more of that um, in higher education than years ago. My, my question, though, to all of you, uh, and, and this is what I keep thinking about since last night, is when is it convenient to cancel? It, 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 it goes back to we know that our environments are more toxic than ever. We have more carbon emissions than ever. We just had a, a conversation this week about what the state of Connecticut and now with the new federal administration is doing to, to not slide even further backwards, but to, 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 to move quickly ahead. But who is willing to give up? Who's going to cancel any, any automotive industry to, to build a car, an SUV that is cool and is um, emitting more carbon, carbon emissions? Who, who's going to cancel that? You know, like I find there's some hypocrisy how people are deciding you know, what are the issues that we're willing to cancel? Who are we willing to cancel? And how does that affect our pocketbooks? And I, so I think there's an economic um, piece to this that we haven't really grappled with. I think often some of the issues is it's hard to tell what is the difference between public blacklash versus cancel culture. I think, you know, often we struggle between that. So many people face public backlash that I don't believe is cancel culture. And it's hard to define who nominates someone for cancel culture, right? Like, it just seems to happen. Like, it's not like uh, we all get in a room. We're like, yeah, let's cancel so-and-so. It's like so- Send it to the committee. Celebrity tweet. Need a committee for that. <laughs> yeah, it's like someone tweets something and then it's like- it whole fire show um everyone else jumps on it it goes on to all across social medias and so it's hard to say like why do we cancel some and not others it seems like some stories catch on and catch fire and other stories don't hold any traction you know we talked about this a lot with d last night is that you know we need to learn how to be okay in the space of discomfort because learning uh, is uncomfortable. Uh, growth is uncomfortable. It's physically uncomfortable when you grow. I mean, it, 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 learning is a, if it's comfortable, I guess I would ask, I say this to my students, you know, learning is an uncomfortable process. And if you're not uncomfortable at points in this class, then I would question how much are you actually learning? So, you know, especially being held publicly accountable, that is, um, I think, you know, back to your point about public shunning, that hits at sort of one of the deepest parts of our humanity and our fear of being outcast, our fear of not belonging, um, and whether we're conscious of that or not. And so people have these intense reactions, very defensive, um, that again, like don't, don't get us anywhere because we haven't really sort of learned how to process that kind of um, accountability and that, that willingness to do the deep work it takes to unlearn bias and frankly, we all, you know, we're breathing this this air and this water, which is both literally toxic, um, as you were just saying, Diane, but also um, you can't grow up 
you know, really anywhere in the world, but specifically here we are in the U.S., we all have this. We all have this as baggage to unlearn um, and to process. I would argue that our strong stance on DEI is what's going to help us in the situation because we need something to guide the conversation and guide the standards of how we're holding folks accountable. If we don't have a strong mission statement, then it's really very much anything goes. Anything goes, anything's allowed. So without something to guide us and guide what we're going to hold each other accountable to, um, nothing is really going to happen. And I think when we're, you know, talking about traditional students and bringing them in, you know, from high school, from their communities into our community in that transition period of learning, right, where they're unlearning their biases, they're unpacking maybe some of their traumas when they're entering our buildings. Um, that is the most critical time to start teaching our students about the importance of DEI, the importance of embracing others that don't look like you, that don't have the same religion as you, don't have the same gender, sexuality. That is the moment to unpack and teach that in the classroom. Because when we don't, we start to have moments where it's like, okay, what do we do with this person once they cause harm to the community? And often in cancel culture, we don't talk about the different levels of harm, right? There's things in cancel culture that we talk about to cancel people that are so much smaller than other things. There's different levels of severities of the issues we're talking about, right? There's a big difference from someone having a multi-million dollar platform on national TV, like talking hate, inciting violence, you know, constantly attacking marginalized communities every day versus an average a person who yelled a slur and was being racist. There is a big difference in severity between those two instances and the communities in which they reach and how many people see that. And so I think the reactions to both of these situations need to be different. There's a huge difference from a student in a classroom that has biases versus someone that is causing a hate crime. There's a big difference. Um, and I think we need to treat them differently. Yeah. And, um, just to bring it back to like, you know, higher ed and all of that and how like students coming from those communities might feel like coming into the Southern community. Like my advice to those students is just to be open, like be open to like those discussions, be open to that discomfort, because that's exactly how you're going to grow. And if someone calls you out on something that you said, then you're not getting canceled. You're being called out and take that as an opportunity to grow and become a better person. And even if that's not something you agree with, at least, you know, their perspective and you understand their humanity because I think um making sure that like your like their opinions don't I don't know make them any less human is like the most important thing because I feel like people think that if they're being called out that they're being canceled like no you're not like take it as a growing opportunity taking it like take it as a learning opportunity to learn about that other person learn about that other culture you know whatever it is that you're learning about but you're not getting called out you're learning Andrina I worry about the um as you're saying that about all the things that people actually are thinking but they don't say because they're like oh here we are the social justice university like in my class i make my stances very clear um i come out on the first day so i you know people know what is what kind of things are allowed in class and what what's not um and so i worry that there's stuff that i'm not even it's not even on my radar i would love to be able to address this stuff but that's what kind of worries me about also sort of the culture of Connecticut, I think, um, and maybe New England is about more of like a hush-hush, 
kind of, we don't talk about it. We'll sweep it under the rug. Um, and here we are at Social Justice University. So if you have any views that are separate from that, then maybe you're going to keep it to yourself, which is not good because then we can't actually start undoing this this stuff. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I could understand why people would rather stay silent instead of like asking questions because they might be viewed in a negative light. But I think what's important is that professors make sure that students who do want to ask questions feel comfortable. And I just want to use my sociology professor as an example, because our previous lecture uh, basically talked about transgender people in sports. And I know like a lot of people might not have been exposed to the transgender community or the LGBT community like in general. So um, he pretty much embraced the topic and asked like, if you guys feel comfortable enough, you know, ask any questions. It's like something you're, you're not sure of and stuff. And, you know, there were a few students who asked the questions that I thought to myself, like, oh, dang, you didn't know that. But, you know, like I wasn't going to judge them. You know, it's a learning opportunity. You know, we're here in a learning space and we shouldn't be judging others. But I thought that it was really great that they felt comfortable to ask those questions and that like the classroom like atmosphere was treated that way. Renee, can I ask you something, if, if I may? But if if I think I'm going to you were going to jump in. So I'm going to I'm going to let you jump in and then I'll ask because you were ready to jump in. I just saw you. <laughs> I was going to say something, but I don't want to cut anyone off because everyone has really good thoughts. But I definitely love the idea of making sure that there is a, a space for people to kind of like ask questions, to make mistakes. I think like that's something we're striving for this perfection. Everybody should be at this woke status. Everybody should be uh, like, nobody's like, there are those of us that know everything. And then anybody who asks questions knows nothing. Um, it's okay to make mistakes because we're all learning. We're all growing. I think that not only should students feel um, or should we should promote our recommendation for having a space for students to grow. I think our staff and faculty and professors need that same exact space because how do you facilitate conversations like that when like you have your own biases and your own opinions and different things? I think that there should be, I'm not, I don't have the answer. I, I don't know what the end all be all is, but I definitely think that um, students and their professors and staff, anybody on a college campus that's interacting with any kind of student um, needs to be willing to be checked. And if you're checked by a student, you should be okay with that, especially when it's, it's something that's personal. It's something that affects that student and you are not a part of it. Like it's okay. Professors also are not woke all the time. They're not, they don't know everything all the time, especially when you don't experience it. And so I think professors need to, and I keep saying professors, but all staff and faculty on a campus should be okay with sometimes I'm going to have to get checked and checked and canceled are not the same because I'm still willing. I'm willing to work with you. If I wanted to cancel you, I'd say nothing at all. <laughs> I would stay mad and just tell everybody, oh, don't that person, dot, 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 dot. But because I'm willing to take the moment to be like, hey, you know what? This isn't okay. Don't say that. Don't do that because this is super triggering or this is super offensive or whatever the vernacular that I want to use. And, and whatever, whoever the recipient is of that message should be willing to be like, okay, be reflective in that, in that situation. Like, all right, is what I said, like this person is telling me that I'm saying something that's offending them. Is there anything else within that umbrella of things similar to that, that I should be checking on? Because I don't know, just human decency. 
You know, I, as you say that, Renee, I, I kept thinking last night, and I wish we would have asked the question about how does cancel culture play out in other countries? Because what I find interesting is the essentialism of, of being American, North American, for that matter, you know, Americans thinking that they're all, that they are the America. And this, this entitlement to cancel someone out, it, it, like, how does that play out in other countries? Because I think any, any, any individual outside of the world, of our planet, would say, what is going on? You know, that this, this phenomenon, I, I, I have to say, it, it seems as I was listening it and trying to get farther away from it, it, it is, uh, to be American is to be essentialist. And it doesn't matter if you're African-American, Latinx, if you have grown up in a different country, there's a different perspective to how we think about cancel culture. There, they, so I, I don't know much. I, I don't want to say much about that because I'm just asking the question. So Diane, I want to speak to that. Um, and the, the from also like not saying too, too much because, you know, as a professor, I'm like, well, I haven't done my research on this. Um, but I was just, you know, I've been hearing on the radio about France um, banning the hijab for um, women in public under the age of 18 or, or like that this bill is being proposed that it's actually not likely to become law. And then also maybe even um, prohibiting women from wearing the hijab when chaperoning school field trips and just in the burkini. Um, so banning all of that stuff in public space. And I just think that isn't that actually canceling? Isn't that edging people out of public space? And I think about that with trans kids in sports, um, which we're going to talk about in a future episode. Isn't saying that you cannot participate in public life, isn't that actually what canceling is? Rather than somebody losing a job or somebody being individually held accountable, isn't it folks who have been imprisoned since the 1960s for political actions? Um, those are folks to me, that's what canceling really is, is that um, removal from public life. I, I just keep thinking about discrimination, racism, um, ethnocentrism, xenophobia. That, that's why this cancel culture to me is a interesting, you know, when you have culture and I, I would agree with you, Casey, but what then what is cancel? How is cancel culture different from anything else? Because the, the hijab, the France saying that they're to be French is to include everyone. And the practice is not because of what you just um, have described. But I, I find it I, then what is different about what we're calling cancel culture today? How's that different from from other from other experiences? Sorry, Andrea, I didn't want to cut you off, but I did. No, that's okay. No, but I'm really glad, Casey, that you said that because it really made me think about how at least like some of the topics that I've talked about or discussed in that socio sociology course is that, um, you know, like the power of social movements, how like when you're a minority, it's because you have no type of like, I guess, control over how society functions because you have these elites that are controlling everything, blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting about that is like, the fact that cancel culture is often looked at as 
minorities coming together to like cancel this one person when in reality it's not really realistic because even if we cancel this one person you know racism is still there homophobia is still there all these other systems of oppression are still present so we're not canceling them we're just canceling that one person and then people try to make it seem as that like that we have this power where we're able to cancel so many people when when in reality like no like we still have capitalism that like functions off of like mass unemployment we still have all these systems of oppression that are going to continue happening and just because we cancel that one person doesn't mean anything at all and then what i thought like was really interesting about your point was just how you talked about how marginalized communities people from those communities are often canceled and it's not really regarded as canceling it's just kind of regarded as like discrimination when it's both like it's both discrimination and canceling and that's not really something that we talk about in cancel culture I think what we're going towards is what actually is the impacts of cancel culture, right? On the one hand, we have people that we call out as individuals for bad behavior, whatever the behavior is, right? And then they are held to a standard of some kind and face some type of outlash for a period of time. Are they ever truly canceled? Probably not. And these are happening on individual basis that is not impacting entire systems as a whole. And then on the other hand, we have communities, entire communities across the world that are being impacted, discriminated against, and ultimately are facing the idea of canceled. So when you think about what canceled is, they are facing that, um, which I think is something completely else. But I love now, I'm kind of go back to this point that Adrena was talking about earlier, about how we manage this in the classroom. I think often we have biases that we don't know about, right? People don't actively think of their thoughts and opinions as biases. They just think it's their their belief system, their values, what they've been taught to believe their entire life. So they don't actively know that they're discriminating against others, that they have harmful, yes, implicit bias. They don't have these, have these harmful thoughts in their mind and X, Y, and Z um, until you get into the classroom. And I think we are in a unique position on a university level. And if we cannot have these social justice-centered conversations in a place of learning, then how do we expect average Americans to have this in their workplace, in their churches, in their communities, if we can't do it here? I think we cannot wait until you enter a sociology class to have this kind of conversation. You know, we need to be having these conversations in all classrooms. A lot of people have a lot of problematic views about affirmative action, for instance. They don't know that unless that topic is brought up in the classroom. And we need professors that are able to manage those classroom conversations, that are able to gauge where their students' views are, to teach the true history around these topics, what's actually happening, because a lot of these topics are deeply complex. They're not these simplistic conversations that we can just shrink down into small talking points. They are large conversations that need research, you know, introspection. You need all these things to have these conversations and to have them accurately. And higher education and universities lead these conversations nationally, right? The research in which we produce help lead these conversations. And so we should empower our students to research and to have these conversations in their classroom for professors to lead these conversations and to also help define what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And I love how Renee talked about 
um, professors should also be open for when students have concerns for what they're teaching, right? If a professor says the N-word and a student goes, that is not appropriate for the classroom and that is racist, right? Instead of a professor being like, oh, wait, no, I didn't mean it like that. They should accept that point. They should accept what that student is telling them. Right. If we expect our students to walk in a classroom dressed a certain way, speaking in a certain manner, then we expect that same regard from our faculty. And so I love that Renee brought that up because often faculty are not open to hearing what their students think. Because I know from doing this podcast and talking with faculty, faculty learn just as much as students learn in the classroom. And so I love that you brought that up, Renee, because it's very true. Well, and that was kind of like a point that Dee was kind of making last night throughout the podcast was that if these people in positions of power and authority are so uncomfortable, then maybe we ought to reassess, do you need that position? Why don't you pick a position you'd be comfortable in since clearly you can't have this conversation? And it sounds sharp and it sounds, you know, not the nicest, I guess, but it, I mean... It's like Casey said, if you're always in this spot of just comfort, like, well, then why are we here? Like, why, why, like, are you really that comfortable in all of the chaos? How can you be comfortable in all of this chaos? How how does anyone just stay comfortable in this? Like, and if you are, then you need to exit and let someone else, and maybe that's what they're, you know, calling canceling, but like, you need to exit the conversation and allow somebody else who has whatever it is, whether it be training or just like, an empathizing heart <laughs> to sit in your spot and have that conversation so that everybody is invited. I don't know. To me, it's just weird. And, and quite frankly, I want to go off that point as well. I think this podcast is the perfect example of how to have conversations, right? We have students that join us. We have faculty that join us. Even right now, there is a mixture of people from different positions on campus that are able to have a social justice conversation and dialogue. It does not take that many competencies to have a dialogue around social justice, to engage in that conversation. And I have said this before on the podcast, and I say it again. I find it really hard to believe that people that are able to accomplish a Ph.D. are not able to engage in a social justice conversation, are not able to run that kind of conversation. I'm quite I'm I'm sorry. Right. We are educated people. There's so many people on our campus with master's degrees, PhDs, 10, 15, 20 years of teaching experience. And I find it hard to believe that they are not able and don't have the competencies to have a social justice conversation. But they can have intense reading. They can have intense problem solving and creative skills and all these other skills. But they lack that competency. It sounds like to me they don't want to grow that competency. Right. It sounds like they don't want to do the research around that topic because we have access to research. We have access to literature. There's so much resources online around anti-racism. There's so much research on the Web around how to engage in these conversations, activities to bring in the classroom. I find it hard to believe. I love politics. I won't bring too much politics into this conversation, but I will say our country has both political parties have subscribed to white supremacy historically, right? And our country, as a country, we have had this debate this year, last year, 20 years ago, and 50 years ago. 
whether or not we're going to have the same energy we have had always as a country, or we're going to start including everybody else. And I think a lot of folks are not ready to include everybody else in the conversation and to give up their privilege and their power and to share it amongst others. And that's what I think it ultimately comes down to. People don't want to have that conversation because they simply don't want things to change. I think to also kind of piggyback off that point, something else that I found really interesting, I keep bringing up D. I just think there are a lot of stuff that they said that was just amazing, but there was a part where they were like, um, a lot of times, so whenever we see people rallying around somebody that's been canceled, um, whether that be contributing donations or whatever, if they're fined or what have you, all the different examples that they gave, um, a lot of times it's because they recognize what they, there's something within them that resonates. Like, well, I do that same exact thing. I don't want to get canceled. They, they don't deserve to get canceled because there are tons of us that do this. And I think when it comes to certain, maybe some c- certain staff and faculty, I don't want to come out here making all these assumptions because I don't have any facts to back that up. But maybe, you know, part of when it, the main reason most likely being Jamel that People are just, they like things the way that they are because they've been benefiting from it. Why would I want to change the formula if that means that I'm going to get shortchanged somehow because we're allowing, you know, other people in. But I will also say that I think a part of it too, you know, in cases of, you brought up that example of a professor is using the N-word in a class for like historical context or whatever excuse they want to give, um, It's kind of like, well, I don't deserve to get canceled. I don't want to have that conversation because there are things that if I have this conversation, right, of things that are inappropriate or or things that, you know, you shouldn't say, you shouldn't do whatever. But I know I do them. But I know I say them that I'm implicating myself. And why would I do that? (laughs) Why would I why would I discredit, you know, my sort of like position by putting, by condemning things or encouraging canceling or calling things out because it's damaging or harmful to other people. When I know myself that I'm guilty of doing, I don't want to have that conversation. I'm uncomfortable. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I think there, there are probably quite a bit of reasons why people do not want to engage. And you're right. It has nothing to do with your credentials because if you can write a, a 75 page dissertation Right. You can have a five minute conversation. You can get on Riverside and have a podcast about this as a normal person, because that's the only qualification that you need is to be a human being. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I definitely side with you on that. It doesn't require grad school. It doesn't require 20, 30 years of experience. It does. Diane has been at Southern for what, two minutes? And she's having these conversations on our campus. You know, it doesn't, it does, you don't need to have all that investment to be able to have these kinds of conversations. It truly is a want or lack thereof. Well, I had a conversation with a, a staff member who I just met for the first time today. She's been at Southern for 30 years. And what a, an advocate for human beings, what a, an empathetic person, um, and just what institutional knowledge it just really has me thinking about, I would put her in front of any group of people on campus to lead any kind of, you know, she has no training in this. And uh, I would put her above almost any faculty member I've met in terms of moderating 
conflict, having difficult conversations with heart um, and compassion from being a human being. And I think actually, Jamil, you know, your point about uh, the PhDs, we have not been putting at the top like the competencies that we're talking about here on this podcast. Like when we're hiring folks, we're looking at at their research. We're looking at, you know, student evaluations, but we're not looking at um, what's your capacity to uh, mediate conflict. What's your capacity? What's your interest in in deep learning and growth? That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for these credentials. And I think sometimes, you know, we have worked hard for PhDs, however that's looked. And then, so sometimes I think it actually gets in the way because people are like, you can't challenge me. I'm in the position of authority here. So like, I know what's best for you. Um, I'm not going to listen. Um, and that certainly, of course, we know that doesn't, that doesn't serve anybody. But I think that that is, is part of what happens. And I think, Renee, you know, that's a good point you bring up, you know, with D talking about that. I think, you know, folks are like, ooh, that person got called out. I have skeletons in my closet. And I don't want anybody to find them. And you know what? Can we weather this? Because I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. Like I have not, you know, I teach my classes the way I teach. I go to work the way I go to work. I talk the way I talk. Um, I have to like learn something new or or do something different. Um, And I think sometimes the universities too, just the, the schedule, the fact that we have a summer break, the fact that we're on campus, not 12 months a year. I think sometimes when tensions build on a campus where we might have pressure to make some change, sometimes that summer break happens and that sort of cuts the, the tension and the urgency and it's not always picked up in the same way at, in the fall. So I, you know, that's one thing I think about a lot on college campuses, especially ours as a commuter school. Um, I think that that can get in the way of really um, making a push because it's like, if we can just get through this, this season, if we can get through this semester, um, then maybe they'll forget about it and I can just keep going back to doing what I do, teaching my classes the way I do. Casey, just a reminder that not everybody has a summer getaway. Um, not that you all have a summer getaway because I know you're doing research, but I think you make a very good point about a break of not being intense by the time the semester ends, you really need a break. You need a break to get away from it all. Um, I, and I'm thinking students in particular, Yeah, you're, that the you're, student pressure. And people know that, you know, people, people, administrators, including me, know that the summer when students leave, the momentum slows down. There's, there's so good point, a very good point. I wanted just to, I know we're up to the hour and, uh, you know, as we think about cancel canceling anyone, and uh, as we think about progressing with our podcast for next year, I would I would push us all um, a little bit more to to say that the podcast ha- the podcast has been a great place, an opportunity for people to speak their mind, share their expertise, provide opinions, deepen understanding. And at the same time, I don't think it has been a space of of rupture where we've had really discontent. Most of the people that have come on this podcast have been mostly aligned, you know, not to say that we all think in the same way, but there is an alignment on how we think deeply about DEI, and there's definitely a commitment to this work. 
it would be um, on us that if we truly are committed to engaging and having, um, not canceling anyone, right? We want to have deepened conversations that I think we could do, we could engage them in these spaces as well. And because what happens is these spaces become, others cancel us. They won't listen to the podcast because they see it as that thing. And so if if there were more that saw this as an opportunity not to, that, that there is risk, but that there is healthy, it's a healthy risk. You don't lose your job over it. You don't, um, you know, you don't lose your power over it. You don't lose your identity, but it's, it's, it's real talk, right? It's, it's having real difficult conversations. Our conversations have been difficult, but we are aligned. Yeah, Diane, I think that's a, a good point that you brought up because I, I was going to ask the group too, like, have you all who are, you know, part of this conversation right now, have you been uncomfortable? You know, we're talking about folks needing to, to be uncomfortable to learn. Have you felt mostly comfortable this whole time? And in what ways do you feel, have you felt comfortable or not? And, and where do you think we can push? I love both of those points. Mm -hmm. I would say to Diane's point quickly before addressing Casey's, um, that's what college is about, right? College is about the exchange of ideas, debating topics, talking in civilized manners to figure out what these answers are. And I would say I would love for the podcast to be a place where our entire community can engage in dialogue on, on beliefs and points and visions and values um, and figuring out where do we want to stand. So I 100% am open to having more dialogue, um, even with people that don't subscribe to DEI work or social justice work, because I feel like their voices are still important. And I would love to be, I would love to hear what they have to say, quite frankly. And then to Casey's point, for me, most of the podcasts know, right? Like I'm a student that been engaged in social justice conversations for quite some time and I have them every day. So for me, I know that a lot of these topics and conversations, these are not the first time I'm having these conversations. I have them on the podcast, off the podcast, with my friend circles, with my colleagues. I have them all day long. Um, so for me, I have not been too uncomfortable. Um, the only time I'm slightly uncomfortable is when I'm having a conversation on a topic in which I'm not very familiar with, like our undocumented episode or our um topic on Asian violence, right? Topics that I don't engage in on an everyday basis. But I wouldn't even say I was uncomfortable having those conversations. It was just new information and a new conversation to me, which I was extremely happy to have. But I would say I have never been uncomfortable having any of these conversations. Yeah, I, um, I'll speak to both of you guys as well. Um, I definitely, that's something that I've thought about, Diane, throughout this is that we all seem to be kind of on the same side about a lot of these topics, um, which is great because it means that you're in a room full of friends. You're in a room full of people who understand you. And that makes you want to talk <laughs> versus being met with a whole lot of resistance. However, <laughs> um, clearly then we're not the ones that need to be having the conversation with each other. So it, it, it would be interesting. I just there's a part of me that feels almost as though. Because we, if we're 
kind of repping Southern. Southern kind of like has this like weird, we all kind of feel the same. So it's not just the six of us in this room, but it's spread throughout the campus for the most part. Not to say everybody, but it seems that the views that we have is in the majority on this campus. Um, That I don't know that us or any other campus, honestly, is like ready, truly ready to be met with. And I don't know what side it is, or maybe it's a combination of both. But if both sides are actually ready to sit down with people who genuinely disagree, and how do you come up with resolution? Because something that was not caught on, on recording, but that you said, Diane, that I really liked was that it seems like when we would rather refer, we'd rather defer to canceling somebody than sitting down and getting to the root of the problem. And, and, and even if you walk away from the situation and you still don't agree, there's still a level of respect there that, hey, you held your own. I respect you for at least holding, and, and within reason, right, depending on that person's viewpoint and what the content is about. But, you know, you held your own. I respect you for you as a person, even though we don't agree on a, a specific issue. As long as it's not like inciting danger or infringing on people's basic human rights. But um, as far as for me, I'd also have to say, like, I haven't really felt uncomfortable the entire time, Um, especially since we were kind of the ones pushing what to talk about. (laughs) So in a way, we were manipulating the conversation because it was our ideas. (laughs) Um, And I I hate to make it sound that way because it was, you know, with good intent was like we needed to talk about these things because a lot of times there aren't spaces for marginalized people to come together and be authentic and to talk about things and have a platform for people to listen to you. So, you know, I do think in a, in a way it was good that we kind of had the control on the conversation. We picked guests that we knew would also kind of align with the, the message we were trying to get out there in a way. Um, at no point did I ever feel that with our guests, we, we would be met with some sort of resistance um, and that's, I guess, what I'm trying to. I did. I didn't foresee conflict happening live on the show for people to see and watch and listen to. Um, so I think that would be. I don't want people in arguments and different things like that. But I definitely would think. I think it'd be healthy to have a conversation, just like you do on a regular basis, not on Real Talk, on a podcast when you're recorded and you're wearing fancy headphones and and have a microphone um, when you're in like the world. And you're met with a whole bunch of people that do not agree with trans people playing sports. And how do you have that conversation with a person that thinks that mm, I'm, I'm OK if we pass these bills? But, you know, and we know that we're not OK with that. And this is why. But let's have that conversation with another person that doesn't see it in that perspective. And that's an opportunity to for both of us to kind of learn from each other in a way. So I don't know. That's my two cents. Often we are and we live in echo chambers. You know, the media in which we consume will tell us the things in which we believe in, right? The people in our lives that we see and we're friends with are typically aligned with our political and societal views. And so often it's hard to try to invite the other side, whatever the other side is, because you don't engage with them often. And I think when we're having these conversations and we're planning the podcast, right, we're picking the topics, we're picking the guest, we're picking who we know is knowledgeable on these topics. And often they have the same political opinions that we do um, or we'll have 
will be speaking from research in which aligns to our viewpoints. And so I think we can definitely do a better job at looking outside of people we know and our bubble and including others that may have a variety of other thoughts and beliefs. But I find it hard um, for anybody to have these conversations without being stuck in an echo chamber. You know, I think Southern is a bubble. Even our university is a bubble, right? And it's once you get immersed in our bubble, it's hard to get out. It's hard to interact with others. That's not a part of this bubble. And I think that may be an issue a lot of universities face. I think something for us to think about too is, um, you know, asking certain, you know, guests with certain political um, orientations around particular issues to join our podcast is a vulnerable thing for them. So that's, that's um, a delicate situation for us to manage just in terms of how do we, how do we recognize, how do we have at least a shared agreement about, you know, why we're here and an agreement to our shared humanity. I also think that there's a, a, a point to be made about what I think Renee was bringing up that having enclaves and having spaces where we, uh, where people who are not usually heard can be heard um, and can drive the conversation is really important. And, you know, there are, like, I don't know if I'd be open to having guests on here who don't fundamentally believe in my humanity. Like, do I care to do that in a public yes. setting? I don't think that I do. Um, not to say that I don't believe in their humanity, but there may be, you know, I guess to keep in mind, like, what is, who do we want to engage in these conversations? And then what do we want to accomplish out of these conversations? And I'd be nervous if it's certain, um, especially extreme viewpoints that dehumanize. Absolutely, Casey. That's a beautiful point because at the end of the day, this is a platform and we have to be cognizant of how we're using this platform. And just like Casey, I'm not having conversations on this platform that devalues my humanity. And I think we can get into semantics on politics, which is something we don't often engage on this podcast. I haven't even shared the political party in which I'm subscribed to or the way I vote and the way I pick candidates. That's not something we have really discussed on the podcast or even bills for that matter. Um, we have really stuck into human rights and marginalized groups and talking about the experiences within them. Um, and that's what the podcast has reflected. The experiences of marginalized groups in higher education and how we're navigating these spaces and things we hope for in the future. That has been the basis of most of our conversations. We haven't gotten into weeds of politics, but I love what you said, Casey, because I think those conversations are important to have, right, with people talking about, why don't you believe in the humanity of others? That may be an important conversation to have with some folks but maybe not on a platform like this. Um, so I think there's a lot of introspection on what do you want the goal of that episode to be? Because we can't just like invite conflict just to have conflict. Like what is the ultimate goal and message we're trying to give to our viewers? Yeah, I think that would, I highly would would be affected more so by like what the topic is. So something like, con like cancel culture, we could have had somebody that didn't feel like, yeah. but yeah. something something like, um, LGBTQ or trans specifically in sports, I don't know that I would want to invite somebody who was like a far on the other side of the, like that just like, and there's no, there's not even, there's not even room to get your point across to get them to understand 
it's kind of I'm coming on just to spew what I feel and I have no intent on learning why these are stereotypes, why these bills are wrong, why like I have no intent on learning anything. I just want to come and represent people who are homophobic just like I am. Um, I think it just depends on that. It depends on the 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 subject at play. Um, it would that's what would determine if we would want somebody to kind of have a little a little dialogue. I'm not going to use the word conflict. Conflict just seems like an like a like I don't know. I don't. I'm not a fan of that word. Conflict to me sounds like an, an absolute disagreement, and I don't think that it's a disagreement necessarily that we want. If it happens, it happens. But it, it's more of just like how this is this is how you have a conversation having conversations for dummies or having conversations one-on-one like one-on-one like that type of thing it's kind of like we want to set the tone for how to be uncomfortable but like embrace that uncomfortability I guess this may be a good time to say for our viewers that are listening if you can think of people you know that would be good to bring on the podcast or if you yourself want to be a part of the podcast and you have opinions and beliefs and thoughts that you don't think are represented currently in the podcast please reach out right we are open to having that dialogue inviting others on the podcast i would say this is a great time to engage in topics like if you want us to have more political conversations i am completely open and i i am down to have these conversations because most of these conversations have been on human rights and not like far right versus far left, liberals versus conservatives. This has not been these conversations. We can have these conversations if we shall like them. Um, So I would say for our viewers to engage with us, engage with the podcast team. If you love our content or if you want to see more of this content, tell us about it, right? What do you love about this content? What are you not loving? What topics do you hope to see in the future? What guests do you hope to see in the future? Recommend us options, right? If you have a professor that you know would be great to bring in, let us know. If you yourself would be a great person to come on and you want to engage with us and join these conversations, especially these after recordings, let us know. Um, I would love to engage with our viewers more. And I want to have some more of these conversations too, where there's listening and that, that, that shared vulnerability piece. I love listening to conversations like that, you know, and that's more of, I think what we need to, the skills that we need to be developing and what uniquely we can bring to these conversations on campus and beyond. All right. I think that was today's second part of cancel culture i would love to thank my podcast team for coming on and debriefing yesterday's conversation this was amazing as always and we'll see you next week